The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when salmon when justice Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanan Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. December 2nd, 2015. In a bombshell discovery, we uncovered another story of false arrests by white racist police and court officials. Members of a narcotics investigation squad for the police department in Dothan, Alabama, planted drugs and weapons on young black men since the mid-1990s with the approval of their superiors, one of whom is currently the state's assistant director of Homeland Security. Also in Alabama, Alexander City will no longer jail people who are too poor to pay their fines. Previously, the police department had been jailing all those who could not afford to pay without any consideration for their financial situation by the judge. SPLC senior staff attorney Sarah Zemperin told Think Progress in an email. These changes abolish that practice and require the court to make the determinations required by the Constitution. Also, the first of the Freddie Gray trials begins today, and the defense actually used all six of their strikes on black people, the majority of which were men of color, many of them younger, which conforms to many people's fears that young men of color may be seen as biased against the police and therefore be excluded from trial. We'll discuss that tonight. Good morning, the email begins. Please click and review. Even one dollar will be greatly appreciated. Them sharing niggas got to learn how to read. That's from the newly sworn-in police chief in Farrell, Pennsylvania, on November 23, 2015. We'll tell you how that story happened and how it ended. Per request, on a need-to-know basis, in our America is Ferguson series, we skip around with our letters today and go straight to Rhode Island. Also, this week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Donovan Allen, a Washington State man who was convicted of killing his mother 15 years ago, will be freed from prison after investigators said new DNA tests linked another man to the crime. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is James Fortin. 1766 to 1842. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find 
archive podcast at newabolitionistsradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1641-715-3660, extension 549032-POUND. Press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. What's happening, Brother Scotty Reed? Happy birthday to you, brother. Uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, my birthday was on November the 30th. I'm still getting belated birthday um, wishes and greetings. So thank you uh, to everyone who has been sending those. Uh, i gotten so many on Facebook, I'm not even able to reply to them all, or I haven't gotten to them all to just tell each and every one. Uh, thank you. Well, I don't know if it's just me, Scotty, but I, you sound like very far away, although I've been switching my system around, so I'm not sure if it's just my sound quality or not. Um, I do seem to be, I'm, I'm hearing some feedback, actually, is what I'm hearing, uh, but yeah, it seems to be bouncing off of your line. I don't know why it's doing that, but I mean, it's not that bad, so I'll try to fight through it. If um, it continues to persist and be a major problem, I'll try to connect uh, a different way. Okay, sounds cool, man. I know Johanan is going to be a little late today. He's still at work uh, and traveling through. Uh, on his way to home, be home, so I guess he'll be on in about a half an hour or so. We got a heck of a lineup of things for us today, man. And and today has been a lot of stuff going on. We just seen another mass shooting uh, out in California, San Bernardino, where I used to live at, where I raised my sons at, and several people were dead, as many as twenty wounded. From what I understand, uh, they had a SWAT uh, team training there, like a full team training, just like two blocks away. This stuff just seems so weird that's consistently going on. And uh, I'm sure nobody's already calling them uh, thugs or <laughs> terrorists. As a matter of fact, I just saw the FBI assistant director say that it was Americans, so it's not terrorists. Like, I mean, Americans can't be too. terrorists. I, I saw that, too. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, I guess he has a different definition of terrorism than what we do. But, um, you know... Um, <clears throat> Still waiting to hear a motive and, and whatnot. I understand one of the terrorists have been killed, so won't be getting any information from him. Um, but, um, yeah, I read that same story about um, the squad team uh, engaging in a training exercise. And, again, you know, people, um, just because you don't hear it on mainstream media doesn't mean it's true. And it doesn't mean that it's some crazy, out-of-the-world conspiracy. The same thing was going on in France, where they were having training exercises, the uh, uh, first responders were already out there uh, when those attacks occurred. Same thing, Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, police already had a wide, a big presence out there and, and talking about a training exercise. So, you know, it, it's beginning at 9-11. 9-11, uh, people want to, want to uh, know why um, those planes weren't intercepted by the military considering, you know, uh, that any time planes go off course like that, that they're supposed to be shot down. Actually, Payne Stewart, a, a famous golfer who fell asleep at the wheel of his plane, um, it was on autopilot, 
and uh, he got shot down after that plane went off course, and it was what? A military training exercise going on the same day as 9-11. So I'm, I'm, I'm not one to get on here and say things that uh, talk about things I haven't thoroughly researched already. I mean, come on, if these people will practice 21st century slavery and human trafficking on a daily basis, I don't put nothing past them. So, you know, I don't have enough information. Uh, right now, I did hear that story. I haven't heard any other confirmations. You know, I always try to have at least two or three sources. Uh, I, right now, I only have one source that there was a squat team uh, training session going on when that uh, occurred. So, yeah, something, still a developing story. Yes, yeah, still a developing story. Uh, a lot of things are developing right now, like the Freddie Gray case. And, you know, CNN, because you mentioned the media, what they do and don't do. And CNN just recently uh, was describing Freddie Gray as the son of an illiterate heroin addict. Like, how biased can you possibly get with the victim blaming and discrediting dead people who lost their lives to police brutality? We have been seeing that so often through the media, and it's just driving me mad. I fully understand the media is not our friend. And there are some mainstream media anchor people who are pretty decent most of the time. But I keep in mind that they ain't never, ever going to say any more than their masters allow them to say. Well, so they are I, reading I from a in teleprompter. In the meantime, they got a lot of nerve. Yeah, they are huh? reading from a teleprompter and the people who make those decisions about, you know, framing the conversation and the little ticker that you see at the screen, you know, the overlay and all of that. Uh, the, there are people behind the scenes, producers and whatnot, who are responsible for that. But I also noticed something similar. You know, we reported on Robert Hinton. Remember the brother that was almost beaten to death by Riker Island? Uh, guards and whatnot. Well, he was killed last week. I reported on that on Black Talk Radio News and the New York Post, which it didn't surprise me that they would refer to him being murdered. They called him a gangbanger, saying that he was a blood gangbanger and whatnot. Um, after he had been murdered the day before, he was supposed to get his $450,000 payout from the city of New York for the brutality he suffered at the hands of guards at Rikers Island. So, I mean, that yeah, we keep seeing it over and over and over and over. And so then we wonder why, you know, we always have these races and whatnot within our midst. Well, there new races are being made every day. It's that constant racist programming, man. So, yeah, I, I saw that. It was just thoroughly disgusting and, and whatnot. Yeah, that's what it is. It's programming, uh, programming people to believe a narrative. When, especially when you start hearing uh, the pathology and the, uh, the 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 way that they present things and want you to embrace it, the fallacies, the red herring of black on black crime being a prime example. It doesn't even freaking exist. I mean, it's just crime. But all you hear is black on black crime when anybody confronts these police for, with what they're doing, the first thing that comes out their mouth is, what you doing about in Chicago? And what are you doing about X place? And you right. guys are killing each other. Right. There's that's, no such thing as black on black crime. There's just crime. Right. That's just, just a racist crime. talking and point. Anywhere and there's crime. It's just a racist talking point that they say over and over. Like Ted Cruz on Twitter had said something about some t uh, what he would do 
you know, to address terrorism and whatnot. And I was like, yeah, please do tell us. What do you plan to do about all these police terrorists? And immediately here comes some of his followers. Well, what about Chicago? I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up not because you just said it. It's the same talking point that they haven't come up with and they've been repeating it for years. They talk about what about black on black crime and, and all this and that. So, you know, I just ignore people like that uh, because I, I understand that either one, uh, they are just, uh, uh, what would we call them, lemmings or whatnot, you know, uh, uh, or they're just racist, man, and they're just trying to get a reaction out of you or whatnot. So I don't waste too much time addressing them. But, yeah, I got hit with that talking point a lot last week when I was asking these representatives, well, what do you plan to do about all this police terrorism? You know, even though I know that's not the kind of terrorism they were talking about, but I, you know, I never miss an opportunity to poke them in the eye. Word, man. Uh, <laughs> cut them with Occam's razor, you know. But uh, yeah, the simplest, uh, the simplest idea is usually the correct one. I mean, we're showing you exactly what's going on, why it's happening here with the abolitionist movement. It's the same abolitionist movement from the 1850s. We're not a new, different type of abolitionist movement. We're doing the same thing they did in much the same way, with just as much diversity for the same reasons. They're still buying and selling people. The police are running around with a slave catcher's mentality. They're hunting our communities, and we proved that they're hunting our communities and feeding these prisons for profit, and not just the private, but the federal coffers are being filled because bodies are being thrown in them, primarily black bodies. And they're selling those stocks on the open market internationally. And we've shown here on this program that it's a global problem now. The model America developed is now being used in many other nations across the globe. We're moving towards what uh, Alex Jones calls the prison planet. Alex Jones, I don't like him too much. Solution. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't like Alex yeah, Jones. Yeah, I don't like him either. Yeah, but because, I, I, you know, I've known about Alex Jones, and I actually used to be a paying subscriber uh, to his website back in 1999, and uh, I think I paid for an entire year to subscribe to his website because he was, you know, putting out, and he still does put out useful information, but he was really enlightening me back then as to the hidden hand you know, so to speak, the uh, uh, shadow governments and, and things of that nature. But this is the issue I have with him. Um, Chuck Baldwin, um, who is the so-called chaplain of the, uh, what they call themselves, the Oath Keepers, he put out a really good article I shared on Facebook about, you know, this uh, uh, hidden hand behind all of this so-called terrorism happening in the Middle East and he was being truthful and honest and then you know like Alex Jones and, and people like him usually white males they talk about the coming police state and I'm like the police state has always existed in certain communities usually the black communities ever since the first police department was created in the 1600s so this coming police state that you worried about it's already here and it's been here Yeah, that's been a beef of mine. And, you know, like yourself, I watched him and several other talking heads like him come up from the very uh, beginning. I remember when Alex Jones was doing his stuff out of his garage in the back, 
you know, and now he's a multi-million dollar industry. But what happened with those cats is because they're involved in white supremacy, they move towards those white supremacist answers, and they use a lot of racism by omission. They never talk about what's happening in the black community. It's always our fault if anything is going on. And they side with the brutality of the police. Like, the police are just doing their job. They don't get enough respect, which is why I have to do a Rhode Island is Ferguson today because of what's going on in Rhode Island and uh, where a young girl wrote Black Lives Matter on a police cup uh, and gave it onto a cup and gave it to a policeman not too long ago. Since then, it's been escalating and there's this feud going on between the cops and the Black Lives Matter and the community people there. So we're going to settle that feud today and show you the facts with our Rhode Island is Ferguson so you understand what you're a part of in Providence. Uh, just to kind of touch that right up, Providence is listed, or Rhode Island is listed, as one of the most racist states in the nation, ranking alongside Alabama and Mississippi. So you need to know what you're dealing with. Anyway, let's get up into our first story. Uh, Scotty, what do you think about that, man? Oh, which one? Uh, well, our lead story is the one that uh, we both found out, I think, about the same time, um, where they uncovered that the cops were, uh, let me clear this up here, let me read it all, um, the, the discovery where the false arrest by the white racist police and the court officials where one of uh, the people who were letting it go is now the assistant director of Homeland Security. Yes, yes, uh, uh, yeah, I saw that story earlier today, um, and you know, it's been going on since the 1990s. Um, I don't have the story up. Uh, do you have it up, Max? That we can share some of those details. I can. Pull I got it up. it up. Okay. Yep, I got it up. Yep, I got it up. Uh, let me read some of it to you. It came from the raw story. Uh, we'll put the post, the original post, on the new abolitionist page, so you can check it out in real time as uh, we're sharing it here with you today. Uh, it says, members of a narcotics investigation squad for the police department in Dothan, Alabama, planted drugs and weapons on young black men since the mid-1990s with the approval of their superiors, one of whom is currently the state assistant director of Homeland Security. According to the Henry County report, Andy Hughes was a sergeant in the department while overseeing the unit, but he was also a leader in a neo-confederate group comprised by squad members uh, along fellow supervisor Steve Parrish. Parrish at the time, a lieutenant, is currently the city police chief. Now we just put all of these uh, several policemen in together with this neo-confederate hate group <laughs> and pointed out that right now one is the police chief out there in Alabama. Documents obtained by the Alabama Justice Project indicate that Parrish and Hughes are frequently mentioned in an internal affairs investigation. However, then Police Chief John White and District, uh, District Attorney Doug Valeska did not notify federal or state officials regarding the probe, as is required by department policy. While multiple black defendants were reportedly accusing local police of widespread evidence planting as far back as 1996, the department allegedly ignored complaints from white officers when they began to surface two years later. 
A group of more than a dozen officers were told about the internal affairs probe into allegations of false arrests and evidence planting, as seen in the document below. Most of them failed the subsequent polygraph uh, test. Now, despite this, however, Valeska continued to prosecute cases involving the illicit activity without notifying the defendant's attorneys regarding this allegation. What do you think of all of that, Scott? Um, I, I, I think that we see this same story play out all across uh, this land. Um, as we, you know, most of the people are outraged, rightly so, but they're hearing the details coming out of Chicago about the cover up of the Laquan uh, McDonald murder. But um, the prosecutor, Anita Alvarez, uh, I've been reading some articles about her history of corruption and helping police cover up stuff and whatnot. Uh, so there's that element. And I think Anita Alvarez, like this prosecutor, uh, they, you know, usually um, if if, for example, let's say the Department of Justice comes in there, does an investigation and found that this woman violated laws and whatnot, just like they found laws were violated in Ferguson, where I don't expect there to be any criminal prosecution, even though uh, multiple people, we don't even know the full number of the people who since 1996 have been put into modern day slavery and human trafficking. Who knows what kind of brutality they have suffered at the hands of guards or other uh, uh, prisoners or whatnot. And so it's just so sad, man, um, that these people always escape prosecution and i'm talking about the prosecutors who who knowingly engage in prosecutorial misconduct there's always either what they either get disbarred or, or i think that's the worst i've ever seen i've barely rarely seen these people uh face criminal charges like obstruction of justice or or even worse you know I, i'm sure you know a, a attorney a u.s attorney can come up with a rico charges you know what i'm saying criminal enterprise and whatnot um and so um, this also has the element of the few good cops that are out there. You know, there's this narrative about, you know, cop, most cops being good. I would submit to you that most cops are not good, um, that most cops are rotten. All right. And that there are some good cops, but they are very few and are and far in between. And we see in this instance, some white cops came forward and filed to complain about what they saw with these practices, this pattern and practicing of planting evidence, drugs, guns on young black men, and it, their complaints were just ignored. Um, then you see that, you know, even when these complaints were filed, they were required to report it to the Department of Justice, the federal government, and they did not do it. So again, you know, if if there is no stiff penalty to pay, then where is the deterrent for all this criminality that we see within law enforcement departments and these prosecutor uh, uh, offices? And so, I mean, this is just another sad story, man. Who knows? Some of those victims, again, this goes back to 1996. Some of these victims, man, they may not have ever made it out alive. Some of them might still be locked up. You know what I'm saying? You know, under the three strikes and all that kind of crap right. and, and, and the uh, 100 to 1 disparity and, and, and all of that. And, and so, you know, just this is just pattern and practice across America. Indeed, you know, Ferguson is America or America well, is Ferguson. And, and so this story is just it's just so sick. This, man. 
There's yeah. some other core elements here that are exposed too. Yeah, this this did I lose you or no? You, go ahead, Max. We hear you. Oh. Well, there's some core elements I think also that this exposes. Uh, the primary one being is for some reason white people don't freaking believe us ever. Ever don't believe us from 1962 what I saw today where Dick Gregory was leading a boycott on Christmas because of what was happening in 1962 to the Black Lives Matter movement today where tens of thousands, millions of people are telling you this is happening. It's not happening to you. It's happening to us. My son died. My daughter died. My brother's in prison. My father's in prison. And, and for some reason, they don't freaking believe us. White America has never been a good judge of what a problem is until long after it has been festering to the point of a civil war or a mass genocide or a point where people are put into internment camps like the Japanese or other camps like they did with the freed slaves. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys just don't believe us. We say, look, my brother's dead. You shot him in the back of the head. The guy with the badge shot him in the back of the head. He was laying face down. Here's the video. And they go, oh, well, he tripped and fell, and the cop had a, a, a slippery trigger, and the trigger had too much oil on it. It wasn't his fault. It was all a mistake. <laughs> you know, Max, um, you know, that may be true Not in some all. cases. Um, you know, I have uh, 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 Caucasian individuals that follow my Facebook posts and they will share their thoughts with me. And uh, one in particular, I'm not going to say his name because he may not want to be identified, but he just wrote on my one of my timelines a couple of days ago. A bit, I was talking about, you know, uh, Chuck Baldwin. And he was talking about, man, I got to share this post and whatnot. And I said the problem with Chuck Baldwin and people like him is that the police state has been in our community since the advent of the first police department. And then he was saying how, you know, how he did not always he didn't always see it either, but his eyes are wide open now. And so I guess we can chalk that up to new media, independent media, social media. Now, you know, they can no longer hide these stories, whereas before you had a compliant corporate media, whether that was your local newspaper, local television newscast, or whether it was national uh, news stories where they have been complicit in covering up these crimes and not reporting. But now because we have so many citizen journalists out there and technology is cheap and, and we can, you know, record stuff and upload it ourselves and whatnot, now they can no longer hide it. Now, some of those other ones, I think they do know. They do believe. It's not a matter of whether they believe it or not. It's a matter of they don't care. And in fact, they probably get some kind of sick entertainment value out of it. So, you know. You mean like a Chris Christie or a Donald Trump, for instance? Yeah. Yeah. There are uh, a lot of good white folks. Uh, I have some in my family who love and care and know what's going on and do everything they can to help. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about this uh, the white vast America majority. that founded right. this country and has run it since the beginning. Mm -hmm. you right. Know, the ones that uh, the white master class, as Frederick Douglass called them and warned us that they would, if allowed to continue, not only take over the Congress, but take over the whole country. And, I, and that's where they went. That's exactly what happened. They took over the whole freaking country. And we see this internal fight with the few who care against uh, those in power who have the most resources who don't and want things to continue as they are. 
this ties in with Chicago, too, this Alabama story, because in Chicago, that's one of the reasons they want the Department of Justice to come in and do an investigation right. is because all of these reports of uh, things that are occurring, uh, brutality and being set up and framed, like almost 100% of them were never even looked into. Like, they just didn't care. Like, oh, it's they a cop. Didn't. I ain't going to listen to no complaint against you. Right. And, and another element of this story that I failed to touch upon, but I'm going to touch upon it now, is the FBI. How old is that FBI report? I think it came out during the Bush administration that white supremacists, neo-Confederate types, neo-Nazi types had, were in the police departments and whatnot. Well, you know, that report tried to make it seem like, oh, this is a new phenomenon or something like, you know, they just now start joining and infiltrating the police. But, you know, uh, from my study of history, Street police have always been in the clan. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and so, but that's that other element. Okay, the FBI years ago said that white supremacists were infiltrating police departments. So, then why the hell haven't you busted any of these people? When is the last time you've seen a headline about the FBI did an investigation, you know, planted an informant or whatnot, and they busted a cabal of neo-Confederate, neo-Nazis, white supremacists uh, at this police department. Uh, you haven't heard of that. So again, this is the thing of why going back to the assistant FBI director's statement about, oh, Americans seem to be behind this, but not terrorists. See, this is the whole thing about white terrorism not really being terrorism, you know, in their minds. Yeah, well, you know, a, a, an example would be that open letter that was sent out from the police union I believe it was out, what was it, in Kentucky? Uh, here it is. You were, you're on notice. There was this open letter that they sent out from behalf of the police union threatening to kill black people. Um, and it came from Dame Babe Mulcher, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police in River City. Uh, I mean, like literally threatened to kill black people if they complained about the racism and started calling the white the policemen and what they were doing racist. Uh, they went so far as to say they would ruin their lives, they would put their families in prisons, they would shoot them down in the street. Now, this was an open public letter on behalf of the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, and he's still got a damn job right now. Ain't nobody investigating him. Ain't nobody checking out that police station and the head's fish thinking from the head down. He's still there, right there. And he's probably done what he said he would do. Well, we're coming up on our first break. When we come back, we'll get our next story in here. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Hey, Max, I think I got a bad connection. If, if, if you and the listeners don't mind, if y'all would allow me to disconnect and then reconnect and see if that uh, clears it up, because I think it's on my end. I think that, you know, it's a bad line. Okay, I'll uh, go ahead and do it. We're going to take a quick uh, break while Scotty connects. All right, we'll be right back. Uh, listeners, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Budget and High Definition by Free Conference Call HD.com. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. Max, you there? Oh, welcome back. I'm here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right. Well, we're going to go into our next. We're going to go into our next story, which ties into this one. Now, this is the same state, Alabama. So here we have, in uh, one hand, where Alabama is uh, police in Alabama working with district attorneys and now homeland ex uh, homeland protection agency people were framing uh, young black men and putting guns on them and uh, putting drugs on them and, and you know just sending them to prison unjustly, innocent men and women. Another city in Alabama is working on no longer sending people to jail because they can't pay the fines that uh, are being issued to them by these courts. Now, as far as I know, debtors' prisons have been abolished some time ago. But apparently that hasn't been the case for a long time now. We've had these debtor prisons and this illegal cash bail system going on, which has really been funneling a lot of uh, black and brown bodies into the prison system. It's the reason why we have uh, basically 90% black and Hispanic sitting in jails waiting for trials, because they can't afford the bail. They can't get that $1.5 million bail, you know what I mean, and, and get out. So. Apparently in Alabama, they understand this now, and they're going to stop. So uh, I'll read some of the story for you. It says, uh, Amanda Underwood won't have to worry about being thrown in jail just because she doesn't have money. And this is from Think Progress, by the way. Underwood lives in Alexander City, Alabama, where a lawsuit filed by the Southern Poverty Law Center in September claimed that anyone who couldn't pay their court fines in full were arrested and jailed without anyone looking into whether they could actually afford to pay or an offer of an alternative plan. Uh, she has already been jailed twice for her inability to come up with the funds, both times missing one of her children's birthday. Another resident, D'Angelo Foster, said he experienced the same thing, losing his job while he spent 35 days in jail over owing $1,700. The last month, in the wake of a lawsuit, the city passed an ordinance changing its policies. As written, it requires the municipal court to consider a person's ability to pay when deciding what course of action to take with someone who doesn't have the full funds. No one who is unable to pay will be jailed anymore. Instead, the court can put someone like Underwood or Foster on a payment plan. <laughs> okay, see. They're talking about both sides of their face. Don't worry. We're just going to give you longer to pay. We're still going to keep finding you. We're just going to work it out where you can afford it. You know, it's like rent a center. You come in, we'll give you first week for a dollar, and then it's $29.99 a week after that. Uh, so anyway, he says, first on a payment plan, give her community service or reduce or cancel the debt. I like that third one. She owes. Uh, defendant will also no longer be charged an additional fee being placed on a payment plan. Oh my God, they were paying more money simply to be on the payment plan. Previously, the police department had been jailing all those 
who cannot afford to pay without any consideration for the financial situation by the judge. SPLC senior staff attorney Sarah Zampirian, oh, this is the second time around we've heard her, I'm glad she's involved in both these, told Think Progress in an email, these changes abolish that practice and require the court to make the determination required by the Constitution. Time will tell what kind of effect the ordinance will actually have on the town, where nearly 30% of the population lives below the poverty line. I bet they were raping that 30% over and over again. And I also bet you that about maybe 25% of the 30% were black and Hispanic, or primarily black. I bet you that's how it was rolling out. Like any changes in procedures, while it looks good on paper, the actual proof of reform will come through its implementation and practice, Siberian said. SPLC will also move ahead in its quest for damages for Underwood, Foster, and others who were jailed over the last two years because they couldn't afford to pay their fines. Now, I like the sounds of this, Scotty, but it's missing some serious elements. And I know it's not in the power of the SPLC to put uh, these additional things in, but it's something that should go on. You've been committing crimes on people. Now, I right. see that a few of the people named here, they're trying to get uh, damages for them, so monetary damages. But that entire community has been being uh, extorted now for quite some time. So because now you change your policies, everything is okay? Like you could just get away with it? Is that how it works? What do you think, Scotty? Apparently, well, there are several things I, w I would like to point out. Um, last week when we were on air, we talked about a similar case where, you know, they had to pay the probation company, and if they couldn't pay, they were put in the jail, and the sheriff was talking about, you know, this jail is overflowing uh, three to a cell, and, you know, it's only designed to hold one person, and, and most of these people shouldn't even be in jail. That was from that sheriff and whatnot. And so, but the thing about that story is I was watching that video, you know, those victims were primarily white. Now, I, I, I just want to say this. I think sometimes we make a mistake when we, um, as, as uh, abolitionists, as so-called criminal justice advocates, when we just paint the victims as all being black. Is it true that we are predominantly the primary victims? Yes, that's true. All right. That is very true. But at the same time, man, like I could go down to Gaston County Jail right now and I'm willing to bet you because I've been in that jail a couple of times that it's going to be 80 percent white reflecting the, the um the population here. You know, Gaston County, where I live, has been called the meth capital of North Carolina because it's lots. It's a, you know, wooded area, rural area, whatnot. You know, lots of people out here, you know, uh, uh, engaging in. Uh, the meth, the uh, drug trade and whatnot, because there are no jobs. There are very few jobs here, you know, that, that you can find. And so I think that we make a mistake when we only talk about black and brown victims and we don't talk about the white victims. Because if we want white people to get involved, we know the majority of white people don't have empathy for non-white people. So I think we need to start uh, making it, you know, uh, making it uh, clear to them that, hey, oh, these are your sons and daughters, too. These are your fathers and mothers. These are your uncles and aunts that's being targeted, too, you know, or, or are you just, you know, so bent on seeing so many black and brown people victimized that you're willing to white sacrifice, as Needy Fuller calls it, you're going to white sacrifice those members of your community. So that's the first thing that I wanted to, um, to say about this. Uh, but 
think about this. When you think about people that's on food stamps or need any kind of assistance whatsoever, um, this one man they described in there, he had a job. Just like the guy in the story last week we reported on. He had a full-time job. But why did he lose his job? Because you want to put him in jail. Instead of giving him community service, instead of giving him a payment plan, you know, now I'm not going to sit up here and say that, you know, uh, we do know that the police engage in, in, in uh, what they call it, policing for profit and giving people tickets that shouldn't have tickets and whatnot. We saw that happen to Sandra Bland, which ended up leading to her death in a jail. You know, they, that cop had no business giving her a ticket for failing a signal when he, he sped you know, up on her, making her think he was in a hurry to get somewhere, and she was trying to hurry up and get out of his way. So we know that those things occur, but at the same time, let's not act like people don't drink and drive, people don't speed, people don't do things that they shouldn't do, and they get these fines and, and tickets and whatnot. Some of those tickets are justified, but what is not justified is you causing people to lose jobs. All right, you're causing them to lose jobs and then put them in jail. And then, you know, once they get out of jail, they've lost a job. Now they got to go on food, get food assistance and what. It's creating more problems than it's solving. You know what I'm saying? So that that's my thought on it. And, yes, the SPLC, other organizations, what I would like to see them start doing is filing RICO charges and suing for monetary damages and then giving that monetary damage to the victims. Well, I think you may be you, you may be on something as far as being inclusive, but you know, I do this Ferguson is America series every week, and the, the one thing we found, state state to state, is the disparaging dif disparaging difference between the arrest of blacks and whites, even in states where it's like one percent black, they're being arrested and incarcerated at fourteen to one. <clears throat> right, so and we should point that out, Max. Like your county. You're you're right, Max, yeah. and we should point that yeah, out. Place. But at the same time, though, we need to also let people know this isn't just happening to black and brown people. This is happening to poor whites as well, and and all of this increasing, you know, you know, of uh, the increasing prison population. Well, damn, you know, after they get to, after they get through enslaving all the black and brown people, who do you think they coming after next? Yeah, I, I, I hear you on that, brother. You know, this story goes even deeper uh, and shows how they exploit the people. They were saying that there's another lawsuit in Montgomery. Alabama that alleges poor people who couldn't pay their fines were jailed but could pay off their debts faster by doing jobs like cleaning feces and blood off the floor. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, you they, they, they hunt you in the street, they stop you like they like your Sandra Bland, you know, they give you a five thousand dollar fine or bail. And then you come up with the five hundred dollars that you need to get out with, and then they fine you another few hundred. And eventually, you can't afford it. And then they tell you, "Well, if you come in here and clean up this blood and crap in the jail cells that comes from the people we've been killing and abusing and beating, or just died on the floor, you can do that for free for a while, and you'll pay it off." Right, another backdoor slavery. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. I feel you. It's just, 
demeaning. It's just absolutely demeaning, man. And how are you supposed to maintain any stability in your life when these things are occurring? You get a job, you lose a job because some cop just find you more than you can afford or some judge just did. And we know these small town judges like uh, here in Eastover, the magistrates that we talked about on this show before is really an epidemic across America where some of them don't even have any education whatsoever uh, towards law and sometimes no education whatsoever, period. Right. <laughs> magistrates that we read about on here and report about whose last job was a rat catcher. Right. <laughs> Who right. say things like, I don't even think about the law. I just do what I think is right. Yeah. And did you know that, like. And those are the people that are, you know. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I had learned from uh, We All Be News. Uh, shout out to Brother Ronald Hurd out there. But I was listening to his program one time, and, and I didn't know, like, in the medical examiners, you know, because they play a role in this, in the police cover-ups of the murders and stuff like that. But in most of the states, all you need is a high school diploma, no medical training whatsoever to be a medical examiner. That blew my mind, man. Yeah, that's it. You, you're talking about a judge, and these judges really exercise more authority than they, they're allowed. One we reported on out in Georgia. Just right. You just got to be popular enough to win an election. Of cases are getting thrown out. Yeah, you just got to be yeah. popular enough to win an they election. They had no business doing what they were doing. One of the more uh, famous ones and recent ones that comes to mind is the Dylan Roof uh, judge, <laughs> the magistrate there. Yeah, so, man. I'll well, tell you, I man, we're dealing with Tiny a beast. Courts on New Radio. We're dealing with a beast of a problem, man. This is a I, I didn't hear you say that again. I said we are dealing with serious problems here in this country, yeah. man. It, it is a serious problem. And, and one of the serious problems that we deal with, in addition to everything else, is uh, where these lawyers literally are using... Uh, Racist practices, judging people based on the color of their skin, uh, picking all white juries as we've seen over and over again, eliminating, eliminating black people from juries because they think that because you're black you'll think a certain way, uh, you know, or do a certain thing. And an example of that now is the prosecution uh, and the defense uh, with the Freddie, Gay, Freddie Gray case. I, I've got a story here. I know you've heard it all, so I'm gonna try to give you something you haven't heard. Okay. And this comes from the De Democratic Underground. And I looked for it because I heard CNN talking about how this service is provided eliminated all of the black jurors. Yeah, go ahead, Max. Uh, yeah, I, I heard how the defense eliminated, eliminated all of the black jurors, but I didn't understand how deep it went. So let me let me read some of this story here. There's a weird echo going on there, Scotty. Yeah, um, I don't know, man, what the problem is. We're having issues with the conference line. Um, so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to dial in. I'm going to hang up and I'm going to dial back in to Skype. I apologize to the listeners for these technical problems uh, tonight, but um, I, I'm trying to eliminate them. So please bear with us. <laughs> I'm going to hang up, Max, and call back in. And I'm sure this is probably on my end. So. 
This service is provided in high definition. Incorrect access code. Please re-enter your access code followed by the pound. Incorrect access code. Please re-enter your access code followed by the pound. Okay, and we shouldn't even be hearing that, so y'all bear with me. I'm not sure. You what, exceeded number of attempts. What is going on tonight? Uh, don't uh, put it pass for intentional interference. Let's try this again. This service is provided. Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. All right, Max, I'm back. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. And I don't hear any echo. Okay. All right. Well, at, at the moment, I don't. All right. So the story is uh, prosecution makes opening argument in Porter trial, and uh, they have a video there from Lawrence Grand Grand uh, Grand Pre Grand Pre. I'm Lawrence Grand Prey. I guess that's how it's pronounced. From Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, we're at the William Porter trial. Now they say here, jury selection was really interesting. The defense actually used all six of their strikes on black people, <laughs> the majority of which were men of color, um, many of them younger, which conforms to many people's fears that young men of color may be seen as biased against the police and therefore be excluded from the trial. Now, the actual demographic from the jury represented Baltimore, two-thirds black, one-thirds white. We obviously don't know any of the details of the individuals in particular. I do think the strike pattern of the defense, though, is the big story of the jury selection. While the defense or the prosecution, excuse me, used their strikes on a diversity of folks, the defense only used their strikes on black folks, predominantly younger black folks. So that points out to a major problem right there, which one of those judges that was reported on here, I think he's out in Alabama, uh, no, in St. Louis or something like that, which is fighting against, where you're trying to keep black people off the jury, so they have nothing to do with what's going on. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, man, um, I would like to see that whole process change. I don't think that they should even be striking jurors or whatnot. First of all, I think that you should have a jury of, uh, pool that reflects the uh, the people in that community and I know it's based on voter registration as well as those who have state IDs or driver's license so you know that's a reason for people to register to vote even if they don't vote uh, so that we can get on these juries and, and, and enact jury nullification and stop sending people into 21st century slavery over victimless crimes um, but I, I would like to see a process to where you have empathy testing, where you're testing everyone, not just white people, not just, you know, one race or other, but everybody be some, some, um, uh, some, would have to submit to a test, a standardized implicit bias test. And then if you pass the test, 
then you could be on the jury. Then, you know, we don't, we don't have to strike people and whatnot. And to me, that sounds like a more scientific way of doing it uh, because the way that the jury system has always been and the way that you know, the process that they use has always been discriminatory. It certainly has always been discriminatory. I mean, what we're really describing here is railroading. We're telling you about how it's happening, how the courts are involved, the judges are involved, and this whole system has been set up for so long, literally since 1865, where they switched from chattel slavery and the individual hold, uh, being able to own people as property to the state managing them through the prisons and being able to use them as property there based on the 13th Amendment's exception clause, which allows slavery to continue uh, through uh, the prisons. Well, we're seeing judges come out, like this is one judge out in Jefferson, the Jefferson Circuit Court judge uh, who prosecutors went off all trials. He's in Louisville, Kentucky. And his thing is he took a stand. He got tired of sitting here watching these lawyers unethically pick all white people to prosecute or, or for defense of African-Americans uh, on trial. It's just ridiculous, man. It's, that's not a jury of your peers at all. Nobody can relate with you or what you're going through. Or re rarely can they relate with you or what you're going through. Unless, like Scotty said, you're one of those people who are suffering it alongside of us. All right. Uh, we do have Johanna joining us. Peace. Peace to the abolitionists. Oh, word. Uh, peace. Peace. Uh, fellow co-host, uh, Johanna Elia, here with us on New Abolitionist Radio. I know working at 9 to 5 is <laughs> kind of hard, brother, but I'm glad seven you're here. 7 seven to 7, 6 to 9, 2 to 10, whatever it takes. Man, yeah, it's crazy. But abolitionism is always on my mind anyway. So, you know, all throughout the day, we're sharing the stories and, and I'm, you know, I'm up to speed on what we got going on. We're talking about the judge right now. I just, I just literally got on the line. Talking about the uh, Baltimore case. And oh, you literally just got. <laughs> right. And we're talking In about Baltimore, the, the defense used all their strikes to eliminate black jurors. And we were talking about how the judge that we discussed before out in Kentucky actually fought against that and maybe took a stand against that. He's doing it right now. As a matter of fact. That's how they get down, man. That's how they get down. Like uh, Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy said himself a few months back uh, with the House uh, when, they, when they met for the uh, Supreme Court budget for 2016, when he said himself that, you know, the, the constitutional right to a fair trial is a myth in I America. And he I was referring to the plea bargain system. So the fact that they're even playing these games with the jury pools the way that they are, it just speaks to such a depth of a sickness with the pe within the people that we're dealing with out here. You know, our society, uh, the, the sickness that's going on in America is not just limited to, you know, mass shootings, which is bad enough. It's not just limited to, you know, rampant greed and, and, you know, just recklessness and all the different types of abuses that people, all of that stuff is bad enough. But when you look at a system that gets 97% of its federal convictions from plea deals where prosecutors with all the money 
and the power of the state and the power of the jails behind them, they get plea deals where they stack up charges against people, in many cases innocent people, but they stack charges against them like crazy and tell them, look, I'll throw so much against the wall at you that these people will convict you of something. Why don't you just take this deal and just do the time and, and give me a conviction? So when they do that, 94% of the time in the states, the prosecution does this. This is what leads to this problem we have with mass incarceration, as most call it, modern-day slavery as we know it to truly be. And when you have that going on, and then on top of that, you've got a monopoly on slavery like this. And on top of that, you've got these jury pools that they're playing with like this to keep black folks from even being in a jury. And in most cases, the case ain't even going to a jury trial in the first place. So how, how deep does it go? Right. You're only keeping them out of three and six percent of the cases uh, respectively. Right. Right. So it's not like you even got to do it often because most of the time you just sign, sealing and delivering people to the prisons. There's no trial involved, basically. You tell them we're going to give you 60 years if you plead uh, not guilty and we'll give you 10 years if you plead guilty. Pick one. (laughs) Right. And as the Supreme Court justice, like I said, he said himself and other judges have said, it it's really should be illegal what they're doing because they're robbing the judge of his power to judge. And, of course, the juries are never seeing evidence. Judges are never seeing any evidence. They're never hearing any witness testimonies. They're never getting an opportunity to put anything having to do with the case together. All they're doing is basically playing the role of a high-level, high-paid court clerk. They sign off on papers, and people go away. And that's the system we really have. So still to even know that that's how it really goes, and you're still playing with the jury pool. So, you know, it's difficult to argue with people that are not uh, willing to read or study any of the facts about what's going on. It's difficult to entertain opinions from the uninformed when so many facts are available. You don't have to know everything we know. You know, you, know, you may not study this like we study it. But if I say something to you or if you hear a, a story, a news story come out and you hear some facts shared with you, it would behoove you to not play the role of a complete idiot and be in denial mode all the time. Just check it out and see for yourself. Yeah, it sounds horrible, but imagine the millions of people whose lives are adversely affected by that. When you came on uh, tonight, one of the things you were saying is abolition is always on your mind. And I, I don't know if I'm, I think I probably am speaking for you, but I think you said that because A, you know slavery never ended. It's not like you're ignorant now. You know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. And B, you know that abolition is a legitimate solution to the problem. It may not solve all the problems in the world, but damn it, it'll solve this problem of slavery and human trafficking, which causes most of the other problems. It's the incentive for so, yeah, so much I'm, more. I'm with you on that thing, our listeners. Right. We wouldn't have to be dealing with these uh, railroading problems that we're dealing with, with these courts and prosecutors. And, you know, like in Providence Rhode Island, or like in Rhode Island, uh, we know the statistics of when you're dealing with these prosecutors. What, is, what was the stats? 95% of all prosecutors are white. 79% of them are white men. <laughs> so mm-hmm. odds are that you're going to be uh, dealing with, if, if you're an African-American or Hispanic or Asian or, or American Native, you're going to be dealing with a white prosecutor, probably a white judge, too. I know in my research on 
Rhode Island, I found out there's only three judges in the whole state that aren't white. <laughs> three. Damn. Damn. In the whole damn state. Well, we're coming up on our, our next break in about a minute. Um, anything you want to touch on before we hit on that? And then we'll come back with we'll one more story and go into our Ferguson series. No, we can go ahead. I'm still catching up. <laughs> All right, Scotty, uh, we'll take this first break here about a minute early. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the chief of police and what he has to say about us. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on blacktalkradionetwork.com. We'll be right back. Did we uh, did we lose Scotty? No, Scotty's here. <laughs> it's been an interesting day. There you go. All right, yeah, hit the break music, man, and we'll come back with you the other story. Okay, sorry, I had stepped away. My bad. <laughs> This is Ron Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Next, we back, man. I, I couldn't tell, brother. I can't hear the music at all. It just sounds like some buzzing to me in the background. Well, I, think uh, that I couldn't hear the music either. Me. Okay. <laughs> have, I got some crazy stuff going on. Yeah, we're having some technical difficulties today. Oh, okay. All right on, right Bear on. Bear with us, people. Uh, we're, we're still on point. <laughs> we're going to make it, though. Just like you said, we're, we're on point. Well, uh, one of the things that I, I want to pull out here is a story coming up about a police chief out in Pennsylvania who sent out an email that said, let me see if I can read this here. I'm having a little slowness. It was in his, actually, it was a Pennsylvania police chief resigned one week after swearing in ceremony over leaked email containing a racial slur. Uh, police Chief Farrell, Pennsylvania, resigned one week after being sworn in for an email made public at this hiring that contained a racial slur. The email may have had good intentions requesting donations for a book drive, but Tom Burke dropped the N-word in the message sent to a few dozen members of a Sharon parent-teacher organization. Imagine that, dude. You, 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 um, oh, my God. Let me read the story. I'm like you today, Johanna. I'm like, I just can't believe some of this stuff. But nonetheless, let me read the story. <laughs> Good morning, Burke began. Please click and review. <laughs> Please click and review. Even $1 will be greatly appreciated. Them Sharon niggas got to learn how to read. <laughs> oh, my just God. So the problem... The problem isn't that he thought of black people as niggas. 
Sharon niggas in particular, the city Sharon or the area Sharon, but that it got leaked is the problem. And he sent right. this to a parent's teacher's group. Can you imagine you're a black parent sending your children to school and this white dude sends you send you an email saying, you know, niggas gotta learn how to read. Well, book drive. Well, maybe he didn't oh, think them niggas could so read before that Before accepting his job as well. What's that? I was saying, well, maybe he was thinking that Man. black parents couldn't read. <laughs> and that's why he wasn't worried about sending it out. Or maybe there were no black <laughs> parents in that uh, uh, email list that he sent out. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, that ain't even the worst of it. But I'll let y'all continue, and I'll chime in when you're done. <laughs> well, it says, before accepting his job at Farrell, Burke worked security detail at a mill. He retired from his position as, as Sharon Police Chief in 2007. Burke, who is white, was sworn in as Farrell's next top cop November 17th and was expected to start in January. But had <laughs> Farrell City Manager Michael Cece known of the email, Burke would have never been hired, he told the Sharon Herald. Farrell uh, Mayor Olive McKeithen asked Burke to step down Wednesday. Now, mind you, this mayor is a person of color. What he said is kind of outrageous, too. He said, I thought it would be best for the community. Not that the, that the dude was calling people niggers in emails at a parent-teacher's group, but that, you know, it's just best for the community, McKeithen told the Herald. McKeithen, who is black, briefly supported Burke as the racially disparaging email leaked, but she eventually changed her mind. I've had a last, lot of nasty phone calls from people in town and out of town, McKeithen added. Burke did apologize for his email at a press conference Tuesday and said his intention was never to offend anybody. Yeah, let me tell you something, Burke. It wasn't none of <laughs> yeah, let, let me, let, here. Let me read uh, from the Raw Story article that gives a little bit more about what that mayor had to say. Because I, I, I want to nominate, Scotty. I got a nominee Word. For, the butter, for the Butter Biscuit Award. Yes, <clears throat> Uh, Mayor Olive McKeithen, who is black, stood up for Burke's character. Until you get to know a man's character, you can't judge him by one off-the-cuff remark. Or else, we would have to judge all white people as equally guilty. <laughs> That's just... Where do they find these Negroes? Wow. Like, oh my God. Wow. Yeah, that well, was the if you go to part. a Donald Trump rally, you'll find at least a couple hundred of them. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? For me, though, that was the worst part because I expect old right white racists to act like old white racists. But what I mm -hmm. don't expect is for and this woman was described as a longtime black activist. Well, what the kind of activism was she engaged in? Well, you there know, you go. Being a proxy racist. I mean, come on, uh -huh. you know. And, 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 you know, this is an update for me because I saw that story and shared it when it first came out. And I was like, oh, Lord, like you said, here's a nominee for the Butter Biscuit Award, you know. And, and then, you know, for her to say that, I'm like, well, all white people ain't sending emails calling people niggas and, and, and talking about how illiterate they are. So why would she even come out of her mouth like that? And so it's good to hear that the members of that community uh, called her and gave her a piece of their mind. And so now this, this racist is being forced out. I mean, we ain't talking about city dog catcher. You know what I'm saying? We're not talking about city dog catcher or janitor or anything like that. We're talking about a police chief. 
So this woman, man, you know, wow, she needs to step down probably if that's the kind of discretion or excuse me, that's the kind of judgment uh, that she's going to use. Uh, she has very poor judgment. So, yeah, uh, this story is just crazy on so many levels. Yeah. But see, that's what we deal with on a regular basis. Police chiefs, and we've reported on them right here, across America, who think like this, who act like this, who do these things. And if it's the police chief doing it, do you really think he's correcting the people under him who do it? So this is when we talk about institutional racism. No, I was just gonna say it's, it's, I was just gonna say it's a little bit of a delay from when I speak to when y'all hear me. But I was just gonna say this is what we saw in Ferguson, which kind of really started pull back the curtain, you know, after Michael Brown's murder. Because when that uh, Department of Justice report came out, they gave us the minutes, the notes from the uh, city council meetings when the city manager told the police chief, you need to get more revenue out of these Negroes. Bottom line, it's 27,000 people in the town and some 22,000 of them or whatever is black people. So, I mean, where are you going to get the revenue? Obviously from the black folks. And that's exactly what they did. And when they told him that's what he needed to do, there was city council members that was there that spoke about other programs that are successful in other parts of the country where people get a chance to work off municipal violations fines and fees and whatever instead of having to go to jail or pay these fines and cash it was telling them there's other kind of like work programs they got you know uh, trash pickup and community you know uh, community service hours that people are able to do in other parts of the country they're having success with that so let's stop bearing down on these people for the money that they don't have they told them to shut up <laughs> we getting the cash and at that point they were getting about a million dollars a year in the city budget from traffic citations and those low-level related, you know, municipal violations that they was ticketing people for. And by the time Michael Brown died, was murdered, two years later, they were up to $3.4 million, squeezing that out of the same number of people in that town. So like you said, when the police chief is down with racism, when the police chief is down with modern-day slavery, with calling black folks niggers and whatever else they want to call them and treating them however they want to treat them and looking at them like they all illiterate and they don't count, you damn right the entire police force working up under them could give a damn about the, them black people. So this is the thing that gets you worked up when you know this and you understand it. This is where you're coming from when you're speaking to people that's looking at you like you crazy. You're delusional. You always talk about it's the man trying to hold us down. And why don't you do for yourself? All that old bull. This is what we're giving you, the facts to combat that. They, the man really is trying to hold you down. Literally, there are people who are hunting you <laughs> and will be happy to see you without a job and sitting in their jails and prisons because they think in their mind that you're just a nigger and you deserve it. And if you ain't a nigger, then you're white trash and you deserve it. And there's no excuse for being who you are. You need to be in jail where you could earn this county some money instead of just being a burden on us all. This is their thought process. And you have to realize that not because you can't think like that doesn't mean somebody else can. And there are people out there who have slavers mentalities who still think of us as less than human, three-fifths human. I mean, the, 
three-fifths human. They put in the damn laws. <laughs> so to think because you were so enlightened now that slavery is over and racism is dead. I mean, it was just, what was it, two years ago they were talking that post-racial crap. <laughs> Post racial, the, the real truth put real. that put that out, didn't it? When the real truth, the real abolitionists put came right out, out the about door. the truth, yeah, they shut that down. I ain't heard that term in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a couple of years, but literally just a couple of years ago, that was the narrative. We're post racial. They gave up on that because they couldn't prove it anymore. It's like, well, we, there's no way we could even say that now and not look like, uh, you know buttholes. Like, literally, you can't say that anymore, because you know you'd be wrong. And they were wrong for a long damn time. And this goes back to Alabama story where I was saying, you never listen to us. You don't hear us. You don't care. We're not part of your priorities to you, the people who are in power right now doing these things. Black lives don't matter. We deserve to be in jail. That's not going to work. And it's not going to work anywhere anymore. Uh, we are bringing out the truth. We are using a big blade called Occam's razor, and we're cutting everything down these days. We're giving you the unfiltered truth. You don't have to look for all of these crazy reasons. You don't have to come talk about lizard men. You don't have to tell us about the Illuminati. We're showing you how this is done. Slavery and human trafficking. Simple as that. And uh, usually the simplest answer is the correct one. Uh, what do you think about going right into the Ferguson report next? Go for it. Yeah. All right. I got a call from a friend of mine. Big shout out to Jay Chattel. He's an abolitionist out in Providence, Rhode Island. Or uh, he's out in North Providence. I got a lot of friends in Rhode Island. It's like a second home for me. I've been going there for more than a decade working with the people there. Uh, some of them from grammar school all the way up to uh, walking into a prison uh, or into a, a, a police station with them while they're in college now, you know? So I've been helping to develop the ideals of what's going on over there. And I know what they're dealing with. They know what they're dealing with too. And they've been having this issue since uh, an article or a story came out where a young woman in a Dunkin' Donuts out in Rhode Island gave a policeman uh, a cup that said Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you know, and Fox News jumped all over it. Anyway, it started a firestorm. It's the headline news every day now from what I'm hearing over there, uh, this continued conversation. One of the uh, former cops uh, by the name of Tony, who was called the dancing cop or the dancing policeman, uh, went out to the Dunkin' Donuts and started boycotting this young woman for writing Black Lives Matter on a cup and demanded that she get terminated. He ended up getting an apology from the Dunkin' Donuts uh, manager there, and I guess that was enough for him. But nonetheless, he was out there talking about how Black Lives Matter are instilling this ideal uh, that it is okay to disrespect police and it's inspiring violence against police. It's another one of those false narratives that is embraced so eagerly, particularly by police and specifically by people who are... Uh, either racist or racist proxies. So they asked me to do this uh, Rhode Island is Ferguson, uh, where we examine it under a fine-tooth comb with an abolitionist spotlight based on the Department of Justice's investigation of Ferguson, but we take it and apply it to a whole state. So let me pull this up right here, and we'll get right into it. All right. Rhode Island is Ferguson. People, quick facts. Population 2014 estimate, 
1,055,173 people. Of that 1,055,000, are white. Of that 1,055,000, 7.7% are black. So you got 85% white, a uh, little less than 8% black. Native Americans, 0.9%, and Hispanic or Latinos represent 14.0%. So there's twice as many, almost, Hispanics as there are African Americans in Rhode Island, this state that has 1,055,000 people. Business quick facts. Total number of firms as of 2007, mind you, if you've heard this report before, you know we bounce around with dates because information is not always updated as uh, regularly as we would like. In any case, total number of firms 2007 is 96,822. Of those, black-owned firms represent 3.3%. So we're 7.7% of the population and 3.3% of the business owners. I see this happen a lot, and it shows that uh, black people in the states really are doing some really good things. You know, they're working at making business. You're talking about half of them own businesses. Okay. Native Americans own 0.4%, and Hispanics own 6%. Women, another trend that we see, owns 27.3% of the businesses in Rhode Island. 2013, the jail system. Uh, I'll do 2013 and 14. The jail system. Rhode Island has a combined prison jail system. Uh, this is not uncommon. We've been seeing several states that are doing that right now. The prison system. The Rhode Island Department of Corrections is a unified system. There are no county jails. The department operates seven housing facilities. The department employs 1,400 people and had a budget of 196 million for fiscal year 2014. That's a, that's a pretty damn big budget for a state with a million people. Nearly $200 million as of fiscal year 2014. Uh, December 31st, 2013, the Rhode Island prison population was 3,361. The community correction system, as of February 2013, 24,763 offenders were supervised by adult probation and parole. 5,967 of those were on general probation. Probation is a big business in Rhode Island. As you can see, 25,000 people, you know. Prison overcrowded in Rhode Island. Facts and figures. Department of Corrections cost for 2014, as I mentioned before, is almost $200 million. The average annual cost per inmate is well above the national average at $55,000 per year to incarcerate one adult. That's a lot of money to incarcerate one adult. That's a damn good paying job. $55,000 a year. Department of Population, total department of active personnel, 1,400. Total number of adult institutions, seven. Total incarcerated under DOC jurisdiction, 3,160. Average age for males is 35. Uh, average age for females is 36. So apparently the same age you're going into these prisons and jails. The average total length of sentence is 24 days. And they are in and they are out. That sounds like probation violations to me. That's what it sounds like. Next, parole and probation. Parole, probation population, 
24,000. Overcrowding quick fix, the average inmate population grew from fiscal year 07 to fiscal year 08 by 2.4%. The average total population in fiscal year 08 was at 90% of total federal capacity. Two of Rhode Island's correctional facilities are over 100% capacity. So you got them packed in there like sardines. A 10-year forecast of Rhode Island's prison population conducted by Wendy Narrow Ware of JFA Associates, the Institute, estimates the population will grow 21%, putting Rhode Island over both the operational and federal capacities by 2014. Well, guess what year this is? 2015, and she was proven to be right. As of December 2012, one out of every 44 adult residents in Rhode Island is on probation or parole. One out of every 44 as of 2012. I bet you that's higher now in 2015. Now, the crime rate in Rhode Island for 2013 is 11% lower than the national average. Property crime accounts for 90% of the crime rate in Rhode Island, which is about 9% lower than the national rate. The remaining 10% of violent crimes and are about 26% lower than other states. So Rhode Island is not having as much of a crime problem as everybody else around. Rhode Island 2013 has a rate about 51% lower than the national average of incarcerated in prisons adults per 100,000. So they're doing good as far as the number of people that they incarcerate. Now, I didn't say this in the beginning, and I should have, but Rhode Island literally is the only state in the Union that banished or abolished slavery in their constitution without a caveat. It simply says that it's abolished. As of 2013, Rhode Island has a rate of about 85% higher than the national average number of probationers per 100,000 people. As I said, it's a probation state. So, you know, we talked about how they keep putting you in and out and uh, violating your probation, particularly with these private probation industries. Rhode Island in 2013 has a rate 79% lower than the national average number of parolees per 100,000 people. And that's because parole was abolished. Taxpayers in Rhode Island, pay about 53% higher than the other states per inmate in 2012. As I mentioned, it's $55,000 to house an adult for one single year in Rhode Island. According to the Justice Policy Report, to incarcerate one teenager under 18 for one year in Rhode Island costs over $186,000 per child. Whew, those are not bounties on your heads, then I don't know what is. Prison and jail incarceration rates. As of 2005, uh, rate of incarceration rate per 100,000 population is this. Whites, 191 per 100,000. Blacks, 1,838 per 100,000. Hispanics, 631 per 100,000. Representing a mere 7.7% of the total population, Blacks in Rhode Island are incarcerated at a rate of 9.6 to 1, representing double the number of blacks in Rhode Island, nearly 14%. Hispanics, in contrast, are uh, being arrested at a rate of 3.3 to 1. Now, you're not equal with the whites, but the people who represent the least in the state are represented the most in the prisons. And this is the problem that we see uh, in every state, and Rhode Island is no exception to that. Rhode Island is a state that's battling itself. 
It was called the uh, a bastion of abolition during the height of the abolitionist movement. And I believe it still is. But at the same time, they're fighting a lot of racism in uh, Rhode Island. Their constitution says slavery prohibited. Slavery shall not be permitted in this state, period. I wish that federal constitution said that. I wish that every state constitution said that. Now, there's some things of note and some headlines that I want to share with you, and then we'll close it up. Of note, America's hotbed of anti-black racism are the South, the rural Northeast, and Rhode Island. According to a study based on Google search terms, Rhode Island ranks with Southern Alabama and Mississippi with its racism. Uh, I will provide that link for you. Uh, second thing of note is in November 2014, Santander Bank settled a redlining lawsuit brought by the city of Providence, which alleged that since 2009, the bank had reduced lending in the city's minority neighborhoods while actively expanding its reach in predominantly white neighborhoods. Now, if you don't know about redlining, they are practicing it in Providence as of last year. Like literally, they were practicing it in Providence as of last year. It's where the banks only lend to white people in white neighborhoods and consistently turn down black people using institutional racism. And this is happening in Rhode Island. Uh, third thing of note is regarding a study. In the study notes, a concerning lack of minority officers in the leadership ranks. Whites hold 95% of positions above patrol officer compared with 2.2% held by blacks and 2.4% by Hispanics. There is one, uh, there is only a single each black chief, captain, and corporal in Rhode Island. So in the entire state, there's one chief, one captain, and one corporal in Rhode Island who are black and only one Hispanic captain. Throughout the state, Three blacks are lieutenants and eight are sergeants, while there are five Hispanic lieutenants and eight sergeants. Whites make up 97% of promotions to chief or top sheriff, 98% do captain, 96.4% to lieutenant, and 97% to corporal. The study says those numbers indicate, according to the study, that out of 85% of the whites who began in patrol, 86% were promoted compared with 2.4% of blacks and 1.6% of Hispanics. The study cited the retention of minority officers as an issue, with blacks and Hispanics being let go before the close of their probationary period at higher rates. It cautions that various agencies could be vulnerable to class action lawsuits under the Civil Rights Act. Well, here we're showing you that in Rhode Island, they are violating civil rights and using institutional racism with to create a primarily white police force. And another story that I had found, just adding on to that, is in the entire state, there are only three judges of color. Like, all the judges are white, <laughs> except for three, in the whole damn state. In 2011, the median white household wealth in the U.S. was 111146 he said. A black household was worth $7,113, and a Hispanic household was worth 8348 Can you see that difference going on in uh, Rhode Island? 111000 to 7000 This is ridiculous. A uh, couple more stories. Let me just pull them up over here on the uh, move to abolish 21st century 
slavery page where you can go and you can see these in their entirety. I'll share a few of them, but I'm going to read some of, a couple of the headlines and some of the things that it says just to drive all of this home. Rhode Island arrest data shows larger racial disparity than Ferguson. See, Rhode Island is doing it bigger than Ferguson. State Republican Chairman Giovanni Cicione's description of labor unions as the last vestige of institutional racism has, no surprise, led a coalition of AFL-CIO officials, uh, this is another story, by the way, unions known as Working Rhode Island to urge Governor uh, Carcieri to demand Cicione's resignation. Asked by Porter Bill Rapoli if he had indeed called unions the last vestige of institutional racism, Cicione said, I did. What does that mean, he asked. His answer, if you look back to the formation of the unions, it was in large part. If you look at Samuel Gompers and people like that, where the heads of the union movements, they were publicly out there saying the reason we need to have unions is to keep the Italians from taking our jobs. That was my grandparents they were talking about when this started. Nothing changed now, Cicione began when Rapalot interrupted with a whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at the numbers, Bill. Look at the numbers, uh, he continued. Go to the Cranston Fire Department. How many women are in that fire department? How many people of color are in that fire department? Uh, Rapoli followed up with a report on Monday that suggested in two different places that racial quotas may be considered for the Cranston Fire Department. In the opening, Rapoli used the, key, uh, the G word directly. Some fire and police departments across Rhode Island are coming under scrutiny for their failure to meet diversity quotas. So it's not just the police. Now even the fire department won't hire your ass, right? Uh, another one was six story in here is ACLU calls for in-depth investigation of Paul Tuckett Police Department traffic patterns. So what they were doing in uh, Ferguson is happening in Rhode Island, where they're stopping blacks and Hispanics, fining them, and then putting them in jail if they can't pay their fines. This is all happening in Rhode Island. So while you guys are talking about, you know, how Black Lives Matter organizations and abolitionist groups in Rhode Island are causing disrespect of police, we're being arrested at a 9.6 to, uh, 9 to 1 ratio, representing only 7.7% of the whole damn state. And if we go to court, the highest, the odds are that we're going to be dealing with a white prosecutor, a white district attorney, a white judge, and they're going to put us uh, in, in prison. <laughs> really, just that simple, because we can't afford not to be. Providence, or Rhode Island, let me stop saying Providence, just Rhode Island is Ferguson. There you have it. Gentlemen? Oh, cue to Florida Evans. Cue Florida Evans. Damn, 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 just, we can't escape it, man. Every state, every week. Oh, Lord, every week it's the same story. <laughs> Why? How is there any person that lives in this country that's still in denial about what the hell is going on? How is that possible? It's crazy, man. It's crazy. And then they wonder why black people are upset because you don't hear us. We're showing you the facts. We're telling you what's happening to us. And you're telling us it's our fault. Like, we're the problem. We're only 7.7% .7 of the damn state, but we're being arrested at almost 10 to 1. Are we, are we really that bad? 
No, you making us that bad because you got all these white cops and white judges and white prosecutors and white hmm. district attorneys who are practicing things like redlining and stuff like that, and keeping us out of particular neighborhoods and keeping us from working in fire departments. But you're telling us it's our fault, right? Hmm. Yeah, you can well, see I'm pissed off because I feel like that's my second home, man, that my people yeah. got to go through this and sit here and... and argue amongst each other about these things whether or not the dancing cop is a good guy who gives a damn if he's a good guy or not he was a former cop as a policeman you're part of a bigger problem i don't care how good you think you are you're participating in this those people don't walk into jails by themselves how many did you personally put into prisons i'm pretty much speechless man yeah yeah no, I was just saying, I'm pretty much let's, just speechless. Let's take our break and then we'll talk about that. We'll skip this right. last break since we're happy. Yeah, I, I would be too. Yeah, we'll take this break and then we'll be back on no, the other man, side. We're listening we'll to New Abolitionist Radio. We're going to we're skip it. When you say, Scotty, I can't hear you. We're going to skip this break since I'm having all these technical issues. Oh, okay. My bad. My hey, bad. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, and also, well, uh, also there uh, you have just let's, let's we'll, we'll take a yeah since we're having all these issues i do well, I heard want to end this program 10 minutes early because i have another program and i need to resolve this issue um so uh if we could just speed it up and we will skip this next break again i apologize i don't know what went wrong but uh there's nothing i can do right now okay well, uh, we'll be able to do that. I'm pretty sure we'll give you 10 minutes. In the meantime, if you're from Providence or if you're from Rhode Island or you're anywhere in Rhode Island and you're listening to the program and you want to chime in on this, I invite you to call us right now. Uh, 1-641-715-3660, extension 549-032-POUND. If you're already on the line, just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. And Scotty will know that you want to say something because uh, I did tell my people that we, I was going to do this today and I thought that maybe they may want to have something to say. So now is the time if you would like to chime in. Um, I don't know if there's anybody somebody on already? No, Max. I'm watching the board. If there All are right. someone right. well, who wants we'll, to speak, we'll, hit star six and one. Right. Just hit star six and one if you want to. Um, well, if, if that's the case, then we'll go ahead and get on to our next segment, uh, which is our Rider of the yes, 21st Century Underground Railroad. Um, Max, we got a caller. Say again? We got a caller, area code 860. Oh, okay. Uh, you're on New Abolitionist Radio. Go ahead with your question. Uh, welcome. What up, what up, what up? Good to hear y'all out there. Peace and welcome, brother. Yeah, man. Uh, Is it just me? I really can't make out what you're saying, brother. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I can I barely make out what you're saying. Say Is it just me? No, it's not just you, Max. Um, if we can barely hear him, let me try to unmute him. Uh, mute him and then unmute him. It, it's, I don't know if it's uh, his line or the conference line or what. Go go ahead, 860. Yes, try sir. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
system and that might be better we might um because there's something going on with the conference line and need to shut it down after this program but i have your telephone number i'm gonna call you from a 704 number uh because we do want to hear from you is that okay okay go ahead and hang up all right let me uh go ahead and uh call this brother yeah And uh, y'all should be able to hear him. This service is provided in high definition okay, by free conference call HD.com. Please enter your access code followed by the pound. This menu will repeat. Hold on, uh, 860, something happened. Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. With these cops about. Uh, Black Lives Matter being some kind of group that's causing violence against police. I don't know. You need to look in the mirror because you're the guys that are killing people and arresting Max. people. It's not us. There ain't no Black Lives Matter group out there killing people. Yes, Max, we do. Um, caller 860, go ahead and uh, try to go ahead now with your uh, question or your comment. Apologies for the difficulties. Oh man, that's still bad. That's still real bad. We can barely hear you. Man. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be one of those days. How about now? It's probably one of those. Days. Yes, we can hear you better now. Oh, that I gotta put my mouth up to the phone. The phone is so tight. Yeah, when you were talking about Massachusetts and all that, with how it break down the statistics on the uh, populations and all that, and you saying that. uh you know, it's obviously in inequities going on and uh, you know, uh all these people have all these positions in the population so majorly black people and stuff. And it was what came to me was like, you know, even those words wasn't even that sharp because to me it was like and it's not like a uh like a judgment or or criticism, but even more pointedly it's like these people are like shoplifters and stuff, but on a higher level, in other words, these are total thieves and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> these white supremacists yes. is nothing but Extortion. damn shoplifters on another level. Yep. Holy as hell. You know what I mean? They, uh, they just robbing black people like that, man. You know what I'm saying? This criminal thievery type shit. They just. Uh, you know, like uh, some type of uh, bigotry type of thing. These people are just damn thieves, man. They use all these tools that they done built up to just continue to rob people, man. Rob us, you know what I mean? And that's the bottom line to me. And that's not even to mention the asset, uh, what is it, the asset forfeiture laws to where they don't even have to charge you with a crime, let alone convict you 
and keep your property. Keep any money that you had that they think, you know, and we've done a show on that where like, you know, a, 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 a clerk for a church might be going to make the deposits from Sunday to the bank on Monday and they get stopped by a cop and they could easily say, oh, this is drug proceeds. And, and again, they don't even have to convict anybody. And they're taking property. They're taking uh, money they're taking everything that they can so you know that's just a whole nother level of the uh, highway robbery that goes on in this country man and that's that's totally so you trying you telling me that this is totally subjective type of stuff whereas like no matter how bogus the bastard ass person who's supposed to be being a law enforcement person that comes across a house full of people he can just like indiscriminately even take your damn niece's toy and say, yeah, that probably was bought by drug money too, right? Probably, really more than likely. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it, this is happening in many states across the country. Municipalities, some municipalities fund their entire budgets through this. As a matter of fact, in 2014, it's been reported uh, that police have seized more valuable property and cash than criminals have. So they literally have taken more than the criminals have taken. Well, they're making more off the black market than the damn people that's doing the black market. Yep. This then is you, slavery and human trafficking. That's how it works, brother. Then you add to it a regular old modern-day capitalism and, and materialism of the average black person where the dollar goes directly out of the black community right back into white supremacy. And it's no secret why we're in the situation we're in. We don't have any type of a of a political representation. We don't have any type of a, what do you call it, like a, like a, the PAC money, uh, super PACs, or whatever. Have any kind of a, any kind of lobbies, any kind of collect any kind of collective uh, financial interest, shared interest whatsoever. This is why we stay on the bottom. We're we, we're not putting together money to be able to pr protect ourselves. That's why. That's why we all have well, to certainly do, 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 do you. You know what I mean? That's what we need to do. Get back to yourself, your creative self, because that's what it's about. I, I see that totally clearly. You know, because we let we let we let things that could save our people just go to waste off of just being basically lethargic and depressed. You know what I mean? Simple things that's creative. It's already. It's already been built in us over all these years of living here, man. But they, we allow it to depress us, yeah, out, but to depress it out of us. Well, eight eight six zero. Unfortunately, because we having these issues, we are gonna have to end our program kind of early tonight. Thank you. So I want to thank you for uh, calling in and chiming in, and I hope that you a regular listener, and this won't be the last time you call in and share with us. But I gotta let you go, bro. But you be safe behind these enemy lines. Peace, brother. Peace, bro. Well, let me get into our, our next segment then uh, so we can get through this really quickly in the next 10 minutes. And this is our uh, 21st Century Rider of the Underground Railroad. Uh, Washington Man Freed at the DNA Clearism in Mom's Death by Gene Johnson, Associated Press. Seattle uh, Associated Press. A Washington State man convicted of killing his mother 15 years ago walked out of prison Wednesday after investigators said new DNA tests linked another man to the crime. 
Donovan Allen left Claimant Bay Correction Center uh, on the Olympic Peninsula a day after a prosecutor dismissed the case against him. Lawyers with the Innocence Project, Northwest at University of Washington Law School, told the Associated Press. It feels great, Allen said in a statement emailed by Anna Tolan, the organization's director. I can finally begin the life I was robbed of. I'm so glad to have a second chance to be a father, a son, an uncle. Allen was 18 when his mother, Sharon Cox, 49, was strangled and bludgeoned in 2000. He confessed to police after an overnight 14-hour-long interrogation. Though he later recanted, he was convicted of aggravated first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. Investigators said new DNA tests recently linked Cox, Cox's nephew, 42-year-old Brian Del Kitts, to the killing, and he was arrested last week. He pleaded not guilty on Tuesday to aggravated murder charge. The Innocence Project, Northwest requested the new DNA testing with technology that is far more sensitive than was available 15 years ago, earlier this year, in an effort to exonerate Allen. Policy Director Jared, uh, Laura Zorowski told the Associated Press last week that prosecutors never suggested during Allen's trials that more than one person may have been responsible. The new testing excludes Allen as the suspect, and Allen should be freed from prison. Police said the tests performed by the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab provided compelling evidence linking Kitts to the killing. Prosecutors dismissed the case against Allen without prejudice, meaning charges could be brought again if further evidence arises linking him. Wow, he's got to walk around with that sword over his head still. Allen's lawyer said the DNA test excluded him as a suspect. Uh, Colowitz County Prosecutor Ryan Jervakanian called the decision to drop the charge against Allen the right thing to do. His lawyers described it as emotional. I've been meeting with Donovan at this prison for the past four years, and I'm truly humbled to share this moment with Donovan uh, where he can begin to rebuild his life after all he has endured. Cox was the sister of Kitts, adopted mother. Kitts was identified as a person of interest during the original investigation. Longview police said, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. Among the items, Innocence Project Northwest wanted retested with scrapings from Cox's fingernails, a cigarette butt, a gun, a phone card, precise areas of the victim's clothing and hair found in Cox's hand. Colorix County Superior Court Judge Marilyn Hand granted the request in June. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, brother. Salute. Donovan Allen. That's December 2nd, 8.30 p.m. EST. So this just happened. Welcome to freedom, brother. Well, <clears throat> there you have it. We're covering all the aspects of slavery and human trafficking, past and present. And now we're going to take you to the past. Uh, for our final segment, which is our abolitionist in profile. Brother Yohanan, you want to manage that one? Do you have it up by any chance? Yes, I do. I suppose with the little bit of time uh, that it's taken for us to get everything on board, if Scotty starts music when I start reading, I should be right on board. Because I can't really hear the music. Perfect. James Sporton was born September 2nd, 1766 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was born a free black man, 
Over the course of his lifetime, he would make a significant impact upon the fortunes of the American capitalist system and the livelihood of his contemporaries. His parents were Thomas and Sarah Fortin. He was also the grandson of slaves. His formative years were spent in Philadelphia, and he attended Anthony Benezet's Quaker School for Colored Children. By the time he turned eight years old, he began working for Roberts Bridges Sale Law. This is where his father worked as well. The following year, his father was the victim of an unfortunate boating accident and died. This horrible tragedy resulted in nine-year-old James having to take additional work to support his family. Over time, James Fortin became interested in politics and avidly campaigned for and supported the issues of temperance, women's suffrage, and equal rights for African Americans. From the year 1800, he was the leader in organizing a petition that called for Congress to emancipate all slaves in 1800. Given the fact that this was the presidential election year, rumor had it that a few of the presidential candidates, among them Thomas Jefferson, were none too pleased with a Negro man advocating for the emancipation of slaves. His activism was further recognized when he wrote and published a pamphlet denouncing the Pennsylvania legislature for prohibiting the immigration of free black slaves from other states. During his early teens, he worked as a powder boy during the Revolutionary War on the Royal Lewis sailing ship. After being captured by the British Army, he was released and returned home to resume his previous job. Pleased with his work and dedication, he was appointed to the foremost position in the loft by his boss. By 1798, Bridges decided to retire and wanted Fordham to remain in charge of the loft. He was able to have his desires realized. Eventually, James owned the business and employed almost 40 workers. In 1817, Fordham joined with Richard Allen to form the Convention of Color. In, 19th, in the 19th century, Allen was the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Interestingly, an organization argued for the migration of free slaves, uh, black slaves to Canada, but vehemently resisted any movement for a return to the African continent. Other prominent men who joined Ford and Allen were Williams Wells Brown, Samuel, I, Samuel Eli Cornish, and Henry Highland Garnett. James Fordon died March 4, 1842, after living an incredible life. His early years were devoted to providing for his widowed mother, his middle years toward acquiring a vast economic fortune and rectifying the brutal injustices that had been perpetrated upon his fellow African Americans, poor people, and women. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes you, James Fordon. Salute. Salute, brother. Salute. Salute. Sound like he did it. It was an incredible life. Yeah, man, he had it all. <laughs> he got that money, and he was out there on yeah. the abolition ship. He was fighting for the women's rights too. But he didn't yeah. do like, yeah. He he didn't do like uh, uh, what's your name, Dr. Dre did, and become almost a billionaire and not invest it into freeing his people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, right. Like, yeah, right. you're gonna go from after the police. To, not helping the innocent project. I wonder how much money Dre gave to the innocent project. No, <laughs> just saying, not a, not a dime. <laughs> well, here we are. We're at the end of our program. Uh, a little bit early, but that's okay. We've had plenty of days where we're a little bit late. Uh, I just want to finish off with our final statements, and we'll see you again next week, Brother Scotty. Um, yes, I just want to remind everyone, if you are in the D.C. area and you are able to travel to Congress, that on December the 9th, they will be having a commemoration of the so-called end of slavery uh, by recognizing the 150th anniversary of the passage of the 13th Amendment. If you're a long-time listener of this program, if you are 
a person who considers themselves a new abolitionist, then you know the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery, that it has a big exception clause in there that says they can put people into slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for quote unquote crime. Um, it, <clears throat> so we have talked about uh, all the people who have been wrongfully convicted, who have been dubiously put into prisons and jails and whatnot. So if you're able to travel to Washington, D.C., I wish I really, really, really wish I could be there. But if you're able to be there, please crash that party and and expose them uh, for being the frauds that they are. Because I'm keep reminded by what uh, abolitionists um Frederick Douglass said about the Emancipation Proclamation and calling it a stupendous fraud. So there you have it, December the 9th. Uh, if you're not able to travel there, uh, please tweet at Facebook, whatever, write emails, call these people, uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, and uh, what's the uh, Mitch McConnell, and let them know that you ain't falling for this fraud. That's all I got. Right on, brother. Well, I'll just be uh, as brief as I can here. I just want to uh, salute uh, all the abolitionists and salute the new abolitionist movement, the uh, move to abolish 21st century slavery and human trafficking group, all of our sister and, and family organizations that are operating throughout social media, uh, locally and, and uh, nationally, even internationally. Uh, the, some of the latest news over this last week has been very encouraging. We see the GEO group has been rated uh, downgraded as they've been continually downgraded throughout the course of this year, 2015. Now uh, one of the top investment research groups, uh, Zacks, actually gave the GEO group a rating of sell. So that was a big victory, um, as we've been telling you for far too long, that they just can't stop getting enough of this slavery stock, but they finally gave them a rating to sell. And I also wanted to uh, mention that uh, down in Florida, Horizon finally just gave up. And, uh, and backed out of their contract they had with the state of Florida where we reported over 250 people died in custody and most of those were related to medical, uh, non-existent medical treatment in the state of Florida as our abolitionist brother uh, George Malincroft down there was uh, reporting to us over a year ago and uh, the death of uh, Brother Darren Rainey in the scalding hot shower but many others who were left without any medication uh, without any kind of medical treatment well Corizon finally backed away and that was a 1.2 billion dollar health care contract with the state of Florida that they had to walk away from. So the abolitionist movement is kicking some ass. So peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors. <laughs> Amen to that, my brother. And I want to give a big shout out to this Rhode Island. I love you. Uh, you guys are awesome. You're dealing with some craziness, but I believe that you can overcome this right now and become what you've always been. The leaders in freedom. You could be the guys that make this happen. You've always been the guys that make stuff happen, especially in the arts community. So big shout out to my people in Rhode Island. Handle your business and let's get this abolitionist movement going. And the reason that we need to get it going is because I need some peace. You need some peace. Scotty needs some peace. I don't want to be doing this 20 years from now for the same reason. I don't want my grandchildren to be doing this 20 years, 30 years from now for the same reason. We got to get our freedom on now. We got to do it before these sociopath whisperers get their answers into the narrative as the solution. And their answers usually involve genocide and mass incarceration. So I do this because I want peace. And remember that abolition is the reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace.
Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the sea spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize 